This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. What happens when regular people work together to create massive, meaningful change on a global scale? Welcome to the Carbon Almanac Collective, a podcast where the volunteers who created the Carbon Almanac share the insights and aha moments they had while collaborating on this landmark project to help fight the climate crisis. I'm your host, Jennifer Myers Chua, and it's not too late to join in on the conversation. Hi, I'm Liki Tang. I'm from Paris in France. And these days I'm working on a podcast. And before that, I've been working with Manon on building educators' content. Hi, I'm Tanya Marion from Southern California. I've had the opportunity to help out with some of the pages in the Almanac, the Educator's Guide, the Traveling Exhibition, a little bit with the daily emails when that first started, and um, now very involved with the podcast. Bonjour, my name is Manon Dorian. I come from Castleman in Ontario in Canada. And my role with the Almanac was in the beginning, I did write some articles and help with editing. And then I decided to join the educators team to create content to help teach what the Almanac is saying. Why did you join the Carbon Almanac? The short story is that I've received this email and been invited by Seth to join. But actually, it's something that has been the... Environmental crisis, the climate, the climate change has been on my mind for a long time, since the eighties. Actually, I came across this issue when I was a kid and I watched a film that is called Soylent Green that you have probably watched. It shows a very dystopian future. And, you know, when you were a kid and you watch this kind of film, it's quite depressing. And then, uh, when in the early 20, the early 2000s, I started my career as an investment banker and I decided to make a career change because I think I was not doing anything helpful. So I decided to study something that would be very helpful for the future. So I decided to work, to study a master's in environment and sustainable development. And it was fascinating. I mean, especially coming from where I was coming from because, you know, it has nothing to do with the uh, investment banking. And it was really shocking. Uh, I remember something that uh, one day I wrote an essay on the consequences of climate change. And uh, my conclusion were twofold. One is that a couple of years or in dozens of years, we will experience what is happening now. Increase of temperature, icebergs melting and um, a lot of problems. And that drives to lots of biodiversity and food crisis and all that. And the other conclusion was that, you know, those who have money, countries and people that have money can cope with it. And it was really unfair because it's not, um, and not the other ones, you know, those who have less. And it's very unfair to them because those people and those countries are not the countries that have created this problem. When I got my degree, I went to companies, to big companies, because it's all I knew because I was from the banking environment. So I say, okay, I've studied this new, this fresh, um, this fresh degree, and it's called environment and sustainable development, and I'm going to help you. 
And so I got, I, I did a few gigs. It was early 2000. You have to remember that. So I got, I was assigned to write something nice for them, for the financial reports of companies that were listed. But it wasn't, it's, I know that it wasn't really helpful because it's, it wasn't, the word wasn't invited, was greenwashing, but it was really greenwashing. And I did also work for architects, you know, helping them, you know, to say, I met an architect and say, okay, you have to help me because they want to, to write something about, you know, sustainable development and environment. And so you, you know, you say that, so you can, you can help me. So I did some gig, but then I thought, no, I'm losing my time really, because it's, it's not really helpful. So it was like, it was that state of the world at that time. And then, but then I realized that, okay, I, this requires to do something really impactful. We have to look at really from the, in the corporate world, we have to look at every step of the, of production chain of the company. And this require to be at the very top level of the company. And at that time I was young, but then I thought, okay, well, what I can do is to create my company. And I've been creating companies since then. So why did I join is it's, was because of that I was there and um, I was really concerned by, you know, the environmental crisis and climate change. And I was trying to do things on my own because I started this way and I joined because I wanted to find a community of people that all that share the same vision values because I'm optimistic. Tanya, how about you? Why did you join? I saw the initial post that Seth had posted on his blog. I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And I've always wanted to have a conversation with him about the environment, but he didn't, he doesn't talk about things like that. It's other stuff that he talks about. And really the only thing that I've heard him really talk about in terms that kind of aligned with, with my world, the environmental education and, and natural resource world was the time that he spends at the summer camp where he has helped out for many decades, right? So I said, oh, that's interesting. So I filled out the form. And, and then was able to join in October. And it was really an opportunity. I saw it as an opportunity to finally have a conversation. Um, and I knew because of my Akimbo experiences that it would be a real conversation, you know, that things would happen. It would be an opportunity to dive into the subject in a way that, that I haven't before. And my background is, is biology and education, and that's the world where I roam. And so I just thought this as a, a really good opportunity to take a different perspective and to approach it in a, in a new way. And, and it's been all that and more. I got the same blind post, filled out that same form that Seth sent in September. And for me, it was being excited about diving into action. I like action. And I've been on this path of following my ecological values for years. And that was an opportunity that was beyond just me. I saw it as, wow, there's this group of people that's coming together and I want to be part of it. And it was timed perfectly with life, my professional life being quiet because I'm an artist, I'm an educator and the pandemic and the lockdowns here were kind of harsh for those fields. <laughs> so I had time in the early days. I had lots of time and dove in fully. I feel like a lot of people who got to join this project joined because we were stuck at home or stuck looking at our immediate environment and really thinking about the world at large. It's interesting. 
So Mano, would you have considered yourself an environmentalist before you joined this project? Yes. Yeah, so my art has been all about upcycling material and making sure people see the potential in things or notice the objects in their everyday life. So yes, it's been a lifelong commitment of mine and to be part of the Carbon Almanac was like an extension, doing it in a different way for me. And everyone here has had the opportunity to work with each other on different things. And I'd love to explore those relationships a little bit. Leaky, can you describe one of your Carbon Almanac contributions and how you and another one of the contributors here work together to create something magical? Your question is perfect because something magical is the, the educators' activities that I worked with Menon. And I'm not an educator in any sense of the, of the word because I'm not a teacher. I don't have kids. And actually, I don't even live in the States. And I think the main audience of the, of the education uh, content were, is for kids in the States. And so it was, was really funny because it's not my blend of skills, if we call it that way. It's not where I thought I could add value. But because I had this idea, and also because when I joined the uh, Carbon Almanac, Manon was actively recruiting people. <laughs> <laughs> and she very nicely invited me to say, oh, and she encouraged me to, you know, to do something. And I started working on it. And um, so I came up with an idea, actually a few ideas of for, for activities for children. And I draft my ideas and there were other people that added their ideas and helped me develop and build something that is I think I can, I mean, we can be proud of because it's not something I have built myself that we have built together. And it's really this, this, um, spirit of in the common almanac is that as long as you want to do something and you want to do to something and you want to serve, you have an idea, you start. Yeah. And there are other people that will see you and come and help you. I love working on the, the, uh, the podcast, but. But the thing I'm really, 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 the contribution I'm really, really proud of is, is this education, this, these activities I have that, uh, Manon and other people in the educators group gave me the privilege to be part of. For me, it was when we were assembling the team for the educators, really what I had in mind was finding people who had a passion. And who had experience with something that was related in the almanac. So for Leaky, she had fashion listed in her, her intro. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. We have the fast fashion article. I'm sure she has lots of experience to share. And so that's how I said, hey, do you want to try this? And what I like about the experience the almanac is giving people is that opportunity to develop organically into Maybe something you've never done, but you can try and discover that it is good and you can do it. And so one of the, right now we're field testing the educator's guide and people love the fast fashion lessons. And they're a highlight of the guide because people really want to know and want to try and it interests the youth in the schools. And so it was perfect. I worked, I got to help out with that effort as well. and. Mano did a fantastic job of 
keeping so many moving parts moving forward, organizing people, following up with people. And it's real, it was really interesting for me to see so many different people work together so well and work cohesively so quickly and, and so well and, and help out each other. And it looks fantastic. What I've seen the last time I got a glimpse of it, it looks really, really good, helpful. And I really think it complements the, the book and this project very, very well. And I'm really excited to see what the people's reaction, you know, the general public's reaction is to, to this. Because it was, it was wonderful to see so many ideas put together. And as Leakey said, you know, in a format and in ways that are maybe different than our normal ways of operating and putting things together. And it was, it was just, yeah, really good. Fantastic. So what's missing from that conversation with educators now or the way that educators are teaching within organized systems of education or whatnot? What are we missing? What are we trying to accomplish with using an educator's guide? I see it as uh, a way to have conversations, to start new conversations and to see new connections between the choices we make, uh, our personal behaviors and what those connections are with the natural world and with our environment, like take Leakey's fast fashion, uh, for instance. And but there's lessons about agriculture and eco-anxiety plants and a bunch of other, you know, other topics. Mm. And so it puts a new spotlight on all these different subject areas. For me, the importance of creating that guide was helping teachers to see a new way of teaching important facts and creative ways that are experiential, where kids are not just sitting down and listening and taking it all in, actually doing things, physically getting involved in the activities. And I pushed a lot for that because I really believe in it. I believe that you learn so much more when you're involved in the learning and also trying to trigger the aha moments for the kids. So when we're speaking about these aha moments, I was wondering if any one of you had any aha moments that you learned from working on this project that have changed how you're showing up in the world. I think the biggest aha moment, so it's not biggest aha moment because it's a grad, it came out, um, I, it's a realization um, and the realization that I'm not alone. There are other people. Yeah. That is the, that is a realization. So, and especially, I mean, some people that are doers, they take action, the people that are optimistic and, and like the challenge, challenge of, you know, trying to solve a problem and um, they're not complacent. They challenge ourselves, we challenge each other and uh, we're building something. And there's a very big shift from me. And it's very important for me because I live in France where the climate, the way the climate question and uh, the common question is addressed by the by the media is that you have on one side I mean you have the climate de deniers you have the people that are for the growth and they are they care about growth and uh, they care about the climate so they don't want growth and they want to stop they, they want us to go backwards in the way out the yeah. way we live and there's not very 
there's n- there's nothing much in between, not very much you know initiatives in between. And I was really happy to find this community of people that and see people that are sharing the same view that because we don't the choice is not it's not doom uh, do a doom future or degrowth, but there's hope, there's alternative there, and uh, we need to explore and let's do it. My first big haha moment, because there's been many, but the first one was about moving from individual actions towards systemic change. And for years, I have been on this path of individual action, putting a lot of effort into it. And I was feeling drained, like I am doing my best and it is not making a difference. And when I saw this, it became clear, so clear at one point, crystal clear of, yes, we do individual actions to get to the collective change and the systemic change, but that the key lies there. It makes me feel better about toning down the level of energy I put in some of my individual actions and putting them towards the the policy change or changing banks and all those things that really make a difference. My biggest aha is that this monster complex topic is approachable. It is possible to digest the many layers of information around this concept, all of the connections that one area, one facet of climate change has to do with another before it was just an overwhelming subject and finance and economics and all that other, you know, other big stuff and corporate manufacturing and all that. Yeah, you know, it's all out there, but you don't really have a handle on it. But now with the watching all of the spreads being made and watching things just come over discourse and getting glimpses of what was going on, all of a sudden these topics and all of these unreachable concepts were now all of a sudden I could reach out and touch them. Antonia, you've you've mentioned connections and the name of the podcast that you're producing is called The Carbon Connection. Could you give us a little bit of insight into what that project is and how it's going to help further the conversation about the climate crisis? Yes, The Carbon Connection podcast puts a spotlight on conversations that are happening across the globe that other people in other domains are real, are having uh, with their audiences. And so it's a way to collect what is being talked about and all these different perspectives and then to share them with the Carbon Almanac's audience. It's been a really wonderful project and also a learning lot and listening to a lot of podcasts <laughs> from, as I said, different domains and, and you know, areas that you might not naturally reach for first. But it's kind of also in its own way enlightening finding these podcasts about sustainability all across like the global podcast network. Mm-hmm. Has there been one podcast that you've stumbled upon uh, as part of this project that you've started listening to or that has changed your mind about sustainability initiatives? Yeah, yes, there is one. Uh, they all have have taught me something in their own way. But I think one that really paints a really timely picture for now and the conversations 
that we are having is Coal at Sunset, which is about the mining town Craig, Colorado. It is produced by the Institute for um, Science and Policy at the Denver Museum. And it is a, it chronicles the change that this town is going through. And it really, I think, tees up the type of thoughtful and generous and patient conversation that we need to be having with each other. And Leaky, the podcast that you're producing is all about those kind of conversations. Do you want to give us a little bit of insight into what that project is? Okay. It has been, um, it's an ongoing process, but I think that we have the final concept because we started this podcast. Uh, the idea was to provide a companion podcast to the Daily Difference email uh, series. But then we realized that there's so much in the conversations that we we're having because um, there's so many interesting perspectives and ideas from people from all around the world, actually. And so we decided to make it more of what is, more of people really caring and talking and having conversations. And what we want to develop with that is to inspire other people. But deep down uh, with this podcast, we hope to inspire other people to have conversations and connect because the problem is so big and it deals with every aspect of our life and everywhere. And we need to have those conversations. And there's no, I don't think there's one size fits all kind of solution to fix the problem. And if we don't have this basis and we don't have these conversations, there will be a lot of, um, a lot of divide in society. I think it's very important to first have conversations, have a very solid basis for this conversation. And um, I was listening to, you know, as I told you, uh, today I spent a lot of time trying to reorganize the different conversations that we had. And there was a conversation about space travel. And one thing that someone said is, I'm not a rocket scientist, but we know that space travel is not good for the environment. And I think this is what we need to do is to build this kind of knowledge and knowing that we're not climate scientists, we're not climate researcher or environmental environmentalists, but it concerns us and uh, it deals with our lives. And so we need to, we have to be involved and we need to feel, to have the confidence to feel empowered, to have to be involved in these kind of conversations. So this is, I mean, at least it has worked for me. And because in the past I thought, who am I to have this kind of ideas or stance? Because I'm always very cautious about what I'll say or share uh, in terms of ideas. But we don't need to be a uh, rocket scientist. And we didn't, don't need to be, uh, to know that, you know, space travel is not good for, for the environment. And we don't need to be scientists, climate scientists to know that some things are good or bad for the environment. So that's the whole uh, idea, the whole concept of this podcast is really to encourage people to have these conversations. And the Almanac itself, the book, is really a tool to facilitate those conversations. And then we have the Educator's Guide and all the supplemental material, including material for kids. And Mano, I know that your kids have stepped up to help us with the podcast, our other podcast, which is for children. It's called Generation Carbon. I was wondering what kind of conversations you're having in your home with your children after working on this project. Has anything changed the way you talk to them about the world around them? 
Yes, I've realized that even though they're, they're young, my kids are nine and six, they have a lot of weight of that doom and gloom already because that's what the kids' books are saying and there's not that much hope in it. We go to the library and we have read the whole shelf of the books on environment and let me tell you, <laughs> the ones that I have hope in them are few and far between the rest. So for me, it's also about getting them to think creatively about the solutions, but not just the solutions, like dream of the possibility. How beautiful and fantastic can it be in 30 years and 50 years? And how do we make those ideas uh, take hold? Like how can those ideas become reality? So the conversations with my kids have become more hopeful and we have fun with them. We try not to stick to the doom and gloom and really play with the possibilities of it can be better and it will. <laughs> How optimistic are each of you that we have the tools now and that we will band together to create this massive meaningful change that we're trying to do as part of the Almanac Project? I'm very optimistic. I'm optimistic because this book, The Carbon Almanac, has made this topic so accessible and approachable. And for me and the people who I am around, environmental educators, interpreters, heritage interpreters, and those, those types of people and, and um, informal science educators, I see this book as finally as a way to strengthen talking points, you know, where topics might have been too big to make into digestible talking points and digestible bites to make a point or to tell a story, to help tell a story, the Almanac makes all that possible. And I just can't wait to start showing it to people and to really be on the ground then with it in hand. I'm an optimist. And I think the way this project has been designed is very, gives me hope, a lot of hope for the future, because the climate change is not there's no, there's no, you know, end point. It's a process. And, um, there's still so many opportunities to invent new technologies. And so now that we have a very open conversation and change the conversation from, okay, it's horrible. There's nothing we can do. And we just wait for the end of the world from, from this to, Okay, there's hope. There's things we can do. Maybe all the solutions are not here today, but starting having this conversation, it's, it gives hope to a lot of people that will take action. And the second part of this project is that there's a lot of content materials for children and uh, we need to get them involved because we really, really need them because they are the, they are the people that will be in charge tomorrow. So they are very, very important. And the way that we are working and help them build the understanding and the confidence to take action, I think that's really what gives me hope. And Manon, do you want to add to the idea of optimism? I can try. So I think I'm a pessimist from in nature. <laughs> I'm also a very curious person. And for years and years and years, I read lots of books and research on the environment and the crisis. 
And at one point, I decided this is too much for me. And I went straight into eco-anxiety and I want to be that ostrich. Like I want my head in the ground and I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. I have little kids, oh my God, kind of moment. And I feel like the Carbon Almanac helped me pull out of that state. It, it helped me understand where things are at now in terms of facts and see the potential of people coming together, of ideas being talked about. All that energy is creating momentum and I feel it building. So I guess maybe your optimism is contagious. And Manal, earlier you spoke about pushing for what you believe in and pushing to create change, not only within our world, but just within this project, you pushed for things that you thought were going to be impactful. And then they ended up really, really making a big difference. I was just wondering if you could talk more about any of those initiatives that you managed to push forward, maybe within the educator's guide or maybe without. Could you speak a little bit more about pushing out of your comfort zone a little bit during the creation of um, the educator's guide? Sometimes I have internal gut feelings that tell me, okay, something's going on. I want to speak out, but I feel vulnerable or I don't, I question myself and then I go, no, if I'm feeling this way, if I have these questions, someone else does too. So I take my little courage inside of me and I say, okay, I'm putting it out there. And this community has been so fantastic in receiving that and giving feedback and moving forward. And for the educator's guide, it was really about bringing people together in order to share the, their ideas on how we can teach this. They didn't really have to know how to teach. They had ideas and everybody has an idea. And when somebody believes in it, then magic happens. And Tanya, is there anything that you've dug your heels in and pushed forward throughout this project? I've had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of different corners here. Definitely the educator's guide was one of the first big things that I got involved with. And I am so glad to to have been able to do that. My kind of invisible intention, I guess, is to create a space for people who work in informal learning environments, community-based educators, because there's so much going on out there that we just don't see. That's why I'm really excited about this this book coming out because all the things, their initiatives, the things that they talk about, the things that they believe in, and you know, it just arms them with so many more talking points and also helps them tell different stories. And, you know, it could be used as a tool to help them create even better stories. For me, I'm I'm glad to be able to do that just as a tiny, tiny bit. And then I think professionally being a working with the podcast and the network and producing and working with so many wonderful producers and so many contributors and you and Leaky and just everybody, everybody who's involved with the podcast, the reviewers, it's an experience definitely of a lifetime. You couldn't, I couldn't have invented this. <laughs> so one thing that came to mind while uh, Tanya was talking is also the community 
that has been created around the carbon almanac, when you throw an idea, it gets traction or it doesn't. And you really feel it quickly. Like when a podcast was thrown out there, it quickly gathered uh, people around it and there was energy there. And so having the opportunity to throw an idea and see if it sticks, see if it gets that effervescence, is super fun. <laughs> and not all ideas make it, and that's okay. I think it's very tempting, based on what Menon just said, it's just very tempting to launch a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of ideas, because um, there's so much you want to do, but... I have to be very careful because I initially thought, okay, because, you know, when you fill out the form, you say how many times in a week uh, you can, you want to be involved in this project. I think it was something like maybe four. And but I think that I'm involved in this project, maybe four hours, not a week, but four hours a day and every single day of the week. And so I have to be very careful about the, because it's really tempting. So I want to, there's so many things we want to do. The TikTok thing, huh? You know, be more involved in social media because I'm not a big fan of social media, but this is a very noble cause to be, to use social media for. And I really want to do that, but I have to refrain myself and say, okay, cool down <laughs> and don't get too much involved and don't read the, don't even read the threads, you know? I think one of the interesting things about this project in particular is that most of the people that I've spoken with for the collective podcast have said that when they originally signed up, they had committed to four hours a week and that that has quickly spiraled. And many of us are fitting this project into the margins. We're fitting it into weekends, late nights, after work. And some people have used opportunities where they're taking a break from work or they've had COVID related job loss or whatnot. So people are really fitting this in where they can. And I know that all of us here at this moment have dramatically gone beyond our four hours a week to contribute pretty much everything that we can to this project. And that just shows the testament of how much all of us, all of us, not just here, but within this community really care. And what do you think you're going to take from this project, from this learning, from this environment, from these relationships that we've formed into mobilizing to create change in the outside world? For years, I had the Maasai proverb written at my desk that alone, we can go faster, but together we can go farther. And these days, right before the almanac, I had changed it to learning how to walk together. And to me, it helps me, the image helps me because when little kids learn how to walk, they fall all the time and they try again. And I feel like a humanity with this climate change, with climate crisis has fallen many times. Like we've tried and it doesn't work and we try again, but let's continue trying. Let's learn how to walk together. So walking the talk and walking together. I love that. I love that so much. Tanya, do you want to add to that thought? Yes. This experience makes me want to focus on informal learning environments even more than I do, because this whole, this whole experience has happened informally. 
It is just look at the rich learning environment. How many people are involved? How many different uh, industries are involved? Different fields, disciplines. I mean, you can just titles and it's just, it works beautifully. It, this type of a change, this type of a collaboration is possible. And so it, it really makes me want to double down on informal learning. This experience makes me want to have more, have more conversations on climate change, carbon, because I refrain myself from talking about this for almost 20 years. I mean, um, no, I shouldn't say that. 20 years ago, when I started having this kind of conversation or telling people that they should consider this issue, I was looked down or say that maybe, you know, I'm, I'm weird. But now I think that first I know how to do it yeah. openly because of you, because of this community. And then have, I'm more hopeful. And um, I know how to do, yeah, I know how to do it and how to take action, organize action and uh, build small project, not like something that will transform an industry, but something, you know, one idea that I have and because Manon is here, so I'm taking this opportunity to share that idea with her. And I know that we're not supposed to develop any non-English speaking project inside within um, the community, but one of my dream is to replicate what we're doing right now on the common sessions or the conversations and do it in French and have people yeah. from Canada, maybe from French-speaking people from Africa and some French-speaking people. Yes, from all around the world and start having these conversations. Liki, I do want to ask you one more thing about your podcast, which is if you had one goal with the Carbon Sessions podcast, what kind of change would you want to make with that project? You're putting so much heart into it and the other hosts are putting so much heart into it. And it's been really magical to watch. But I was wondering, what's the end goal? If downloads aren't our end goal, if it's not metrics like that, what are you looking to achieve with this project? It's not measurable for us. It's something that we could witness around us. It's really having people having more conversations and um, more And more conversations and build more connections around the topic of carbon and also building the future together because we, uh, because the whole point is think of our future and what kind of world we want to live in. And so, yeah, people take action and feel and take, well, maybe I shouldn't say responsibility, but take ownership of the destiny. I was going to say, let's have all these conversations in all the possible languages that exist. And in terms of action, it starts with starting. Somebody in the community said, how do you start with all these things? And it was like, yes, we're just, we need to take one step, start by starting. It doesn't have to be a big plan. And so let's have the conversations and start Again, this this book makes action possible. It before it might might be oh we're stuck. This is too big. Really, it doesn't involve me. I could I can dismiss it easily. But really, the conversations that we need to have are just 
have. I mean, even the private moments to think about climate change, you know, it makes this, the almanac makes all this possible. The podcasts make it possible. The educator's guide, the the kid's book, everything makes that possible to have thoughts during private moments and then to articulate words in more public moments, in conversations with other people. You've been listening to the Carbon Almanac Collective. This podcast is part of the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network. For more information, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Subscribe and join us next time to get more insights from regular people mobilizing to help the world fight the climate emergency.